Welcome to the Young IPA Podcast. I'm James. This is Pete. G'day, everyone. It is the 24th of November. This is episode 195. Fun show coming up. So we're going to be talking to someone that I've been wanting to bring on the show for a while because his Twitter feed is a lot of fun. And uh, Caleb Bond, uh, writer at the Adelaide Advertiser, uh, because South Australia... To all our listeners in South Australia, oh, by the way, Pete, meant to send you this before. I got this email from this random uh, podcast ranking company, just Mm. like, hey, do you want to use our service? And one of the reasons they wanted us to use their service was because in the last week, we came 34th in Saudi Arabia in politics podcasts. We did not. We (laughs) did not. I forgot to send you that. It was like one of the first things I woke up to this morning. Like, yeah, you're the 34th biggest news podcast in Saudi Arabia. Anyway. not Is the point. That, that can't be true. Yeah, I don't know. It's true to me. It's my truth. <laughs> All right, good. Anyway. Well, let's. We're going right. to be thirty third next week. Let's have a good show. <laughs> We're like, uh, yeah, shout out to all our Saudi Arabian listeners. Uh, we're a minute in, we're already completely off the rails. But South Australia, you guys have had a week and a half and my heart goes out to you. That has got to be an absolute brutal roller coaster of emotions. Good to see that it's mostly done. I mean, we're going to get into that with Caleb, obviously a writer in South Australia, someone that went through each blow by blow. And then, you know, Pete and I are going to talk about it at the start because what the hell just happened? We also got Emil Holland on his article on ABC t- privatization last week went pretty viral over on the Australian. Check it out on ipa.org.au if you haven't already. But yeah, a bit of a war of words with one of the ABC's board members. So that's a lot of fun as well. Pete, anything you're looking forward to in the show today? Well, I mean, I think we've already had the highlight being 34 yeah, in Saudi no Arabia, 30. but uh, in, terms of, in terms of things I'm looking forward to, uh, a classic case of uh, a company trying to go woke and not, not going broke, but not quite hitting the mark later on in the show. That's really good. And I just think this could be one of those episodes um, that have been pretty rare this year where we won't actually have to mention Victorian Premier Daniel Andrews. Well, we, we, nearly the <laughs> we so nearly got there. We nearly got there. That's going to be exciting. <laughs> I mean, yeah. you kind of ruined it already, but all right. Uh, all right, let's talk about it because South Australia, this is one of the craziest news stories you'll ever see, uh, craziest weeks in politics ever in the history of this country. So uh, I'm, I'm still trying to piece it together. I'm pretty sure I know it. If I've got anything wrong, let me know, Pete. But mm. so last week when we recorded the show, oh, I will. it seemed to be... <laughs> Last week when we recorded the show, there seemed to be 15 new cases and there was a bit of a panic that South Australia was going to go back into lockdown. Then following a couple of days, they had the press conference where Nicholas Sperrier, the South Australian chief health officer, laid out that they seemed to be dealing with a particularly viral strain of coronavirus because someone came forward with, who tested positive and said that all he did was collect a pizza from a pizza joint that someone who was active worked at. So they thought, okay, this is, must be the most viral coronavirus strain in the world because you can get it off a uh, off a pizza box. So whole, whole state goes into lockdown, which was way worse than what we had when we were doing 700 cases a day in Victoria. There were bans on going outdoors for exercise. I think liquor shops got shut down, but then that was then repealed. But... Uh, you know, leaving a house for one hour a day, only one family member can go. Uh, just awful, awful scenes. And then two days later, it comes out that the guy lied to the contact tracers and he actually worked at the pizza joint and they didn't have the reason to go into lockdown that they thought they did. Have I got that right? You've got that pretty much right. Originally, they thought they had COVID with a lot, if you will, James. And then they figured out it was <sighs> just the show again. a normal... <laughs> A normal margarita COVID. <laughs> I have been planning that all week. Uh, now, that's what it was. I want to know, who is this guy, right? So if he's... Not who is this guy. I'm not going to dox him. But um, why did he lie? That's my question. We ask it to Caleb later and, and spoiler alert, he did, we don't actually know yet. But what do you think is the reason why? Was he maybe just doing cash in hand in the pizza shop? Uh, I assume to- so. Or just... You know, like, who, who knows? But... I think there's been a whole lot of, uh, hey, who's this guy? What's his big idea? Why did he send the state into lockdown? And he didn't. All he did was tell a lie. And obviously, you shouldn't lie to contact tracers. And, you know, we need to find out what his reasons were in case someone else comes forward in the same situations and lies. But, I mean, he wasn't in the room saying, yeah, ban people from going outdoors exercise. Like, that, he he's not to blame here for this <laughs> incredible... Uh, catastrophe because I nearly said a bad word uh, catastrophe and 
the other part of it is that we didn't get into in my spiel was all the other states were just like, yep, borders closed again. Like after all the work we'd done to open up borders by Christmas, it's like, yep, well, you know, borders are closed. Except for New South Wales. Just out out New South Wales. But I don't know. This is where elimination strategy is, as I said on the show last week. Uh, off one lie to one contact tracer, an entire state can be locked down and borders can be plo- closed with four other states. Like that is what elimination strategy, trying to get to zero rather than just going like, look, outbreaks are going to happen, uh, but you need to keep living your life. And as long as you have a solid contact tracing team that can keep them small, you're going to be fine. That's where we're at. That's right. And, and, and with the lockdown, what, as we sort of go with Caleb as well, is that it was actually a really terrifying version of lockdown. So they said it was going to be six days. You couldn't exercise. I know a lot of people in South Australia have backyards compared to maybe Melbourne and Sydney, but even so, not being able to leave your house for exercise. I and, mean, you know, every lockdown in the world gets extended. That's the general rule. So how long were they actually intending to keep South Australians and their pets, as you mentioned, uh, not leaving their house at all is crazy and you you also think like it's a lot of effort to shut a state down like it's really difficult and and as we've seen in this case it it can back come back to bite you and make you look really silly why couldn't they put as much effort as they're putting into shutting the entire state of south australia down in confirming this guy's story like why didn't they just you know ask the pizza shop what happened you know um because they could have potentially sold them for a lot of egg on their face so it just seems to be this thing that Always the first thing is lockdown, 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 rather than, um, you know, a more middle of the road approach, I guess. Yeah, I'm not some sort of big city scientist, but like, <laughs> what? Come on, what was the first? Why was the first indication? Oh, this is a brand new strain of coronavirus not seen anywhere else in the world, and not oh, this guy might be telling a lie. Was that so? Like, so I, we, like yeah, why yeah, was? Why was the first indicator, like, why was the first, oh, okay, so this is the most viral strain of coronavirus in the world, rather than, oh, okay, this guy might be telling us a lie. Like, I, I, don't, I don't know why one was thought before the other. Yeah, exactly. There wasn't this, like, this doesn't sound right. Let's yeah. look into it. It was, we're going to shut down everything forever. And as you sort of mentioned, it made news all over the world. It was, I think I saw something in the, the Wall Street Journal, you know, how how the Australian state shut down over one lie from a pizza shop. Uh, yeah, well, so. that tweet... That tweet from South Australia Police went viral because someone tweeted at the police, can you tell my husband that he's wrong and we can't take the dog for a walk for a week? And then the police uh, responded, yes, you cannot leave your house for exercise for the next six days. And like that went viral in America. People could not believe. I mean, that's one of those, and we've had a million of them this year, but like show yourself that tweet 12 months ago and just go, (laughs) what the hell happened? But yeah, Yeah. that's what it was. Uh, Another part for me... um, We've seen Daniel Andrews go, all the Victorians are starting to be, like every Victorian knows someone that's been taking liberties with restrictions and that's why we need to lock down even more. And then last week you saw Stephen Marshall go, uh, there's a complacency in the community. There's like this general blame of populace. I like that it's now moved into no specific blame of the populace. Like all of our restrictions are of this guy, not just you in general, but this one random South Australian, it is his fault. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, um, it's always better just to, to pick out one person than pick out lots of people. But uh, yeah, it's interesting. And what ha- what's going to happen to them next time? Like, do we uh, next time this happens, is South Australia going to be able to contact trace? Or will they do it again? And you know, as a Victorian, I'm sort of quite done with lockdown. And it sort of it sort of occurred to me over the weekend, like we're going to have like some we're all going to have outbreaks at various points, and how our government's going to react. That's the the major issue here. Yeah, because apparently that's where the bar is. And as Caleb says in the interview, South Australia's contact tracing system seems to be pretty okay. It had 4,000 people in quarantine within 48 hours of this guy talking about the pizza joint. Uh, Sounds like they've got a pretty good system and they know where people are and what people can do, but you still need to lock down the entire state and ban people from exercising out of their homes for six days. So, like, where is the bar for what needs to be locked down? Uh, But honestly, just... One of the craziest weeks. And you just look like such a clown if you're Stephen Marshall. Like, yeah, I know I was up here two days ago locking it down, but let's go back. Yeah. False yeah, alarm, guys. Back yeah, <laughs> my bad. No, not my bad. It was that guy's bad. Uh, yeah. All right, so... We got a bunch of border updates as well. Yesterday, we had New South Wales and Victoria direct flights back up. Uh, pretty heartwarming photos of all those people uh, at Sydney Airport. You know, lifeguards and uh, s- such greeting people. I like seeing that. Drag queens. Um, yeah, yeah. It was it was good fun. It was good vibes, and I appreciated the vibes. And you know, it's an indicator that you can actually open borders 
which is something we would love to tell Mark McGowan, which is uh, if you missed last week's show where we talked to Caroline DeRusso uh, about Western Australia's hard borders, that was, uh, you know, it's, it's still a huge situation. Here's a fun fact for you, Pete. I think there I know what you're going to say, but you do it. There are more active coronavirus cases in Western Australia than there are in New South Wales and Victoria combined. And yet, if you are a Victorian or a New South Welshman and you want to go over to Western Australia, you do have to quarantine for 14 days. And you still have to as well if you're a South Australian, even though the government admitted we didn't need a lockdown. Yeah. Well, I don't know, mate. That's popular. That's why they do it. I think that uh, we've all sort of learnt about human nature a bit this year like so okay so my border theory is is as follows right it's easy it's popular right so that's why they do it and um the reason it's popular is it's because it's really easy to frighten people and people kind of you know it's this thing that's under it's difficult to understand there's lots of different theories floating around and people's first reaction is well this threat right now is really serious let's just do everything we can to deal with it and it's always easier to tell people it's always easy to convince people to act about a threat that is going to happen right now rather than a disparate number of threats in the future over an extended period of time. It's kind of like, who cares about the wheat crop in the future if I'm going to get eaten by a saber-toothed tiger today? So I just think we're hardwired that way. Uh, And some premiers, rather than do what I would consider to be the leadership thing and sort of, you know, lay out the problem for people and say, this is what we're going to do. Um, it's easy just to play on those fears and go, yep, no, we're going to we're gonna lock down the borders and I'm just going to sit here watching my poll numbers go nuts. That's yeah, exactly. Theory. So uh, we had the new excuses. So we talked with Caroline to us last week about how uh, the excuses are so different every week as to why you can't open the borders. I mean, for the, for the moment, it was... Um, Oh, because there's just too many numbers in New South Wales and Victoria. That has now moved because if they are ever going to open up the borders in Victoria and New South Wales, uh, according to Mark McGowan, he would now take into account the sewage testing in the state in question and take into account the movement across borders, for instance, from South Australia to into New South Wales and Victoria. Sorry, if you're a state that's open to another state that has coronavirus, you are too risky to Mark McGowan. <laughs> yeah, no, it's uh, it's crazy stuff. We should, we should mention, James, that... Uh, just now, just before we started recording, um, Anastasia Palaszczuk, obviously the Queensland Premier, announced that their border with New South Wales will be open from December 1. They, she had a bit of a stoush with Gladys Berejiklian during the week where Gladys Berejiklian said they're making stuff up as they go. They keep changing the rules. They keep espousing advice I have never heard of, uh, which if... You and uh, me both. You and me both, Gladys. That's right. That's exactly right. And you would notice that the two great states of Queensland and New South Wales, James, uh, during the last week or so have been engaged in state of origin rugby league, which of course is a very big deal for people up there. And there was a bit of a controversy between the two premiers um, regarding texting and texting etiquette. Um, and I've actually got the text right here in front of me. Um, not because I've got something exclusive. It's, you know, in the media. And Are we weighing in? Are we weighing in on texting etiquette? We're going to, yeah, we're going to weigh in on text okay. etiquette. So Gladys Berejiklian wrote, congratulations on your win to Anastasia Palaszczuk, especially during a pandemic. Congratulations. And I'd love to talk borders with you. Now, Anastasia replied only to the bit about the rugby league game, saying Queenslander, great game. Ignore the bit about borders. James, what do you think about that? Uh, good de-escalator. Like, I, obviously, I would like Anastasia Palaszczuk to uh, talk a bit more about borders, but just if you are given a three-pronged text message and one of them is something you don't want to respond to, just respond to the other two. It's just another, it's just an easy get-out-of-jail-free card. Pete, can I guess your feedback? What do you make? Well, I'm sort of in the same boat. Like, it's sort of, it's just that that's what you would not wanted to talk about. Like, I... um. I don't think there's any great kind of secret here. I reckon you would have done one more. I reckon you would have done one more. And this is how well I know my pay. But you would have also <laughs> sent that with a laugh emoji. Like, let's talk about the borders laugh emoji. Oh, it's so your if favorite. I was Gladys Berejiklian. Yeah, you would have just gone, we should talk about borders laugh emoji. Because that's your, any, like, if, if there's even, even like a 3% chance of a controversy with one of your messages, you just send a <laughs> laugh emoji just to be safe. Yeah, just to sort of take the sting out of it, you know. Uh, <laughs> if I was Anastasia Palaszczuk, though, like, and I've just watched Queensland win the, the State of Origin, you know, I thought, would have thought she would have had a few 4Xs and a couple of Bundys and um, just, I'm just surprised she didn't go completely bunter on borders and say, look, we're not talking about it. Get stuff, 
Go the Maroons. <laughs> yeah, that um, was a that was a gentleman's agreement of the if the, of the series. If you guys won, we would be talking about it. Uh, that's right. All right. Well, this is a bit of a lane switch, and it's going to be a bit more somber, but it is really important to talk about because there was an article in the West Australian from Bali, and you think about countries that are very reliant on international tourism, uh, or places that are very reliant on international tourism. I should say it's obviously Bali being number one, especially to the Western Australian market. And a reporter went through talking to people in Bali about how they've been affected by it. And it is as bad as you can possibly imagine. Uh, Not-for-profit organisations estimate the reality uh, of an 80% unemployment in the island. So really think about that. Four out of five people out of a job because of the lack of tourism. Uh, The situation is so dire that some are struggling to feed their families, pay bills, or afford essentials like baby formula, nappies, and medicine. Others are selling cars, scooters, businesses, and personal belongings in a desperate bid to make ends meet. I mean, again, this is Elimination Strategy Manifest. This is what happens when you close international borders and you uh, you just stop people traveling. And we've always, like, you know, we talked about this with the climate change question, which is if you want to divest from coal, really go to the communities that need coal in order to keep the lights on. And if you can still say, hey, we need to divest from coal immediately because we need to save the planet 50 years from now, two people that are going to be thrown into extreme poverty immediately once that decision's made. Uh, if you can't do that, you don't honestly believe it. And if you genuinely think elimination strategy is a way to go, like tell it to the four out of five people in Bali that now don't have a job and are waiting till, you know, at least a year from now when people can come back to Bali for holidays, tell them the importance of elimination strategy. Yeah, exactly right. Really well said. There's, I mean, I wrote a piece about this right at the start of the pandemic about how the impact of this obvious uh, economically on countries in the developing world is massive and i get that you know there's governments and state governments of australia have to put you know their people first rather than people in other countries but it's just not accurate to say this is about the economy versus lives this is lives versus lives and one of the ways one of the and the lives that have to be included are people in developing countries that aussies go and visit a lot. Um, it's not just Bali. You know, I'm sure in Cambodia, I think it's like 25% of all jobs in Cambodia are connected to um, are connected to tourism. And Australians uh, are one of the countries that go to one of the people that go to Cambodia a lot. But yeah, no, you're exactly right. It's a good point. It's it's it, you can never, as I said, you can't put people in other countries before people in Australia. But they, they deserve to be, I guess, included in the discussion. Yeah, so. but that isn't even, that's not even the debate. Like, we're not in a situation where it is our lives versus their lives. It is, like, our want of zero active cases versus the lives of others. Like, you, you can have other strategies than complete elimination. So I don't think it is, the debate is our lives be their lives. Uh, anyway, I just wanted to say that because it's really important and it's the evils of elimination strategy in my view. All right, let's move on to heroes and villains. Uh, this will be a bit more fun. Grunt the pig, freedom, snort for people that have stood up for freedom and justice around the world. This week, Peter Gregory, take us away. Who is your hero of the week? I wonder how Grunt's going. We haven't seen him for a while. Um, anyway, so my heroes this week, James. Uh, now, it appears the two mates in year 12 in Queensland got married so that they could have a party of up to 100 people. So in Queensland at the moment... You can only have a party of up to or a gathering up to 40 people. But if you have a wedding, you can have 100 people. Uh, there's not much detail apart from that. This was just a post on Brown Cardigan that we've, uh, that we've run with. Uh, and, you know, I know marriage is a serious institution and, you, you know, you shouldn't muck around with it. Um, so I'd be hero of the week. <laughs> <laughs> so what, the, what, I'm, what I'm rewarding as a heroic aspect of this is not necessarily that people are hijacking the serious institution of marriage to have a party but one of the things that's taken hit in this pandemic james is my view of my fellow australians as anti-authoritarian kind of uh ned kelly rebels type thing um but it's good to see that at least in the youth there is still an element of that rebellious fun-loving nature and these two mates that have got married just so they can have a bit of a shindig are my hero of the week uh, it's still second to that Argentinian church that became a bar just so it could have mass. Like, I still think that's my number one, but it's one that, of the better on. ones. Yeah, that, that's a real hero for me. Uh, I know I've done this one a million times and I apologize for going over it again, but UK lockdown has changed. It's not going to be a lockdown, but it's now this like three-tier system, which is lockdown by another word over Christmas. And 
what I like, and I've talked about the need for an actual backbench in Australian Parliament and how it can actually get things done. This is what happens. So there's 70 rebel MPs, a lot of them in the Conservative Party, that are saying, OK, we don't need to this three-tier strategy. We don't need a lockdown. We're not going to support Boris Johnson, which means for Boris that he actually has to get the Labor Party to agree to his coronavirus strategy, which they might not do. So... You know, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on this because I do go over it again, but it is important that when you get an actual backbench, you can actually have actual changes and you don't have an entire party just going, yes, this is the right way to do things, dear leader, keep going forward. This is what a back, an actual backbench can do. Shall we move on to villains? Nice one. When you said, um, when you said I'm not going to spend any time on it, I got back, I got, uh, what are they called? <laughs> Bob Memories. Cannon. Yeah, Bob Cannon. Bob Cannon going, and I'm not spending, spending any time on it. We haven't done one of those for a while. We should get back to it. Anyway, Villain of the Week, James. Uh, well, Mitch, this week, roll the tape, mate. As Extinction Rebellion protests enter their sixth day. That is the Extinction Rebellion fake nudie run. The uh, Villain of the Week is the Extinction Rebellion fake nudie run. Villain of the Week, James, who have you got? All right, this is the most 2020 of stories. So Governor Gavin Newsom over in California has thrown the state into a massive lockdown. Uh, except for him. So he was at a dinner with 12 friends, which is illegal. And uh, it was like a birthday dinner, 12 friends, it was illegal. And the excuse that came out was, okay, but it was outside, so it's fine. No, it turns out it wasn't. So a Fox News station in California got a hold of the photos. It is the governor of California, some senior members of the uh, California Medical Association and some top lobbyists, 12 of them sitting around having an indoor birthday dinner. No one's wearing masks. They're crowded next to each other. And Governor Newsom, you know, the whole time is going, the state needs to lock down. People can't see their families. People can't see their friends because we've got a serious virus. So it's locked down for you, but not for me. The most 2020 news story ever. If you do want to celebrate, get rich and have a publicly funded salary. That is actually quite unbelievable, that story. Uh, okay, so my villain, James, is uh, my villain is Boris Johnson. So over in the UK again, new cars and vans powered wholly by petrol and diesel will not be sold in the UK for 2030. Uh, in the UK from 2030, Prime Minister Boris Johnson has said, and he's hailed this as a green industrial revolution. Now, uh, they also said the government said that it would support the creation of 250,000 jobs in parts of the UK where we want to see levelling up. Now that's obviously just a made-up number where they decided what sounds good on a media release and they came to the conclusion that 250,000 jobs um, was a good number. So I guess I'm just sort of asking Boris Johnson, what's the point of view? You know, you uh, won all these seats in traditional Labor zones, 80 seat majority, we're going to get Brexit done and then you pull crap like this. So villain of the week, Boris Johnson. Pretty simple. This, this is, oh, I'm going to be, you know, Winston Churchill, blah, 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 blah. Green Revolution, come on, mate. Yeah, I remember when he got elected, there were a lot of people going, don't get caught up in the hysteria. He's as bad as anyone else. And we were like, mm. nah, he's going to be fine. It's like, oh, yeah, no, he's, he's, he's that bad. I thought that he would, I thought he was a bit of a chameleon, you know, like a lot of politicians that would just go with, you know, whichever way the wind was blowing. But given he had this big majority, that meant the wind was blowing towards good stuff. But yeah, it didn't. maybe he's just got bad advisors who were like, actually, the way the wind is actually blowing is it's what I've always thought all my life. Yeah, exactly. That's that was very funny, Pete. That was Thanks, very mate. good. All right, there we go. Uh, all right, we'll take that uh, to go to our interviews with Caleb Bond and Evan Mulholland. Uh, but before we do this, uh, this podcast, all the other podcasts we do, uh, it's all part of the Institute of Public Affairs. And uh, if you are a member of the IPA, thank you so much for being a member. If you're not a member of the IPA, head on over to ipa.org.au/join. Got three different membership tiers. One's really affordable, the Generation Liberty one for all of our young listeners out there. If you're at university and if you want to, you know, I know it's like all over Zoom at the moment, but as we get back to in-person events, like Generation Liberty is going to be a lot of fun. They're doing a lot of Zoom events as well that are really, really enjoyable. And uh, yeah, just ipa.org.au slash join. Join Australia's biggest voice for freedom. Let's go to Caleb Bond. Okay, we now welcome on someone that I have been hoping to have on for a while, and I was going to hope that it was under better circumstances than what South Australia has been through for the last week. But we're here nonetheless. Caleb Bond, a writer with The Advertiser over in South Australia. Caleb, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me, fellas. Yeah, cool. So, Caleb, can you try and explain to us how one pizza worker was able to send South Australia into the biggest lockdown ever seen in Australian history? Well, it's quite extraordinary, isn't it? I mean, basically, this guy who we've now found out 
uh, is a Spaniard in his 30s, told contact tracers that he caught coronavirus after buying a pizza from the Woodville Pizza Mart, which is where a staff member had already tested positive to COVID. So the contact tracers basically thought that this fella got COVID off of a pizza box. Um, so they've immediately gone, oh, my God, We've got some major virulent form of the virus is running rampant in South Australia. People are getting it off cardboard boxes. Let's lock the whole joint down. Um, and so they took this guy at, at face value. They took his word for it um, and locked down the entire state on the basis of one man's testament, which turned out to be false, um, that he caught coronavirus after going to a pizza shop. In fact, he was working in the pizza shop alongside the other staff member who had already tested positive. So there was never any spread out of the pizza shop of coronavirus. The spread was only inside. Uh, but it was on this basis, on the basis of this lie, that the entire state was locked down for three days. Kyla, one thing I can't manage to work out here, and it might just be me, is why did he lie? Why did he just say he was working there? Well, it's not entirely clear as yet. I mean, there's there's been lots of rumours going around, including that he could have been paid under the table, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but what we do know is that there are 20 uh, high-ranking detectives are looking into this guy right now. I mean, the, the SAPOL, the SA police set up a task force headed up by the assistant commissioner with 20 high-ranking detectives to look into one guy's lie. Um, so I think there's a fair bit more to come here, whether that involves the, the pizza shop and the staff. I mean, there are so many questions you can ask. I mean, if, if this guy, if there's one bloke who says, OK, I got COVID from a pizza box, surely the first thing you do is go to the pizza shop and say, well, have you ever seen this guy? Do you remember him coming into your shop? And someone goes, oh, yeah, I reckon we might have employed that bloke. I might have worked alongside him. There, there are so many questions. Uh, to ask about this, and hopefully some of that comes out this investigation. Um, but at the moment, it's all very hazy what actually went on and why it went on. Uh, we talk about this pizza guy, and obviously, like, he's the centre of the story, but ultimately he didn't decide to send the state into lockdown, and I feel it's really disingenuous of Stephen Marshall to say this is entirely the fault of one man's lie to a contact tracer. Um, what did you make of them standing in their press conference saying, like, don't look at us, we did everything right, it was this guy that stuffed up? Well, that's right, isn't it? I mean, they've, they've basically thrown this guy under the bus um, because the fact of the matter is that we didn't have to go into lockdown. There was no reason for us to go into lockdown because there was never any community transmission. All of the cases that have been found have been linked to people uh, who were linked to people who had the virus already. And um, so it's, it is incredibly embarrassing uh, as a leader uh, and as a state to have made such a snap decision that they needed a fall guy, basically. Um, so Stephen Marshall has, has come out and blamed this fella um, wholly and solely pretty well for the state going into lockdown. Now, I mean, I'd hate to be that guy right now. Uh, he should never have lied. There's no question about that. The, the contact tracing system is only as strong as the, the people who are part of it. And you'd like to think that the, those who are questioned will tell the truth. But when you have one point of data, which is all they had to suggest that the virus had spread out of the pizza shop, and you use that one piece of data to lock down the whole state, you've got to take some responsibility for trusting that data at face value. Sure, the guy should never have lied, um, but to basically throw him out to the baying wolves as they did, and there are people all over social media and all around the state. Uh, basically, you know, I reckon they'd like to have this guy dragged into the middle of Adelaide Oval and have a public lynching or something. I mean, that's how angry people are about the fact this guy lied. Very good distraction by the state government. No one really is talking about how we shouldn't have gone into lockdown in the first place. Um, but I would hate to be him, put it that way. Now, Caleb, how did the lockdown go with South Australians? Because, you know, in Victoria, we obviously had a really long lockdown and the, the idea that you couldn't even exercise was, would, be, would be terrifying from my perspective. Um, and we all know, you know, like it starts off, it's only going to be six days, but then, you know, months down the track, you're still in, in lockdown. So what was the view amongst South Australians of this? 
Yeah, I mean, you're right. It was the strictest lockdown in the country, probably one of the, the strictest lockdowns in the world, I think. I don't know of too many places that have actually banned you from being able to exercise outside of your own home. And it, 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 it was very strange. I mean, there were a group of people, myself included, who said, this is ridiculous, you know. I understand that when you've got an outbreak, you've got to institute some restrictions to try and get hold of it as quickly as possible. Um, but to go into the country's strictest lockdown when there were all of 17 confirmed cases, I think, at that time. It's now uh, in the 30s. But there were 17 cases confirmed and we go into the strictest lockdown. I thought it was ridiculous. Having said that, um, I'm not sure that the majority of South Australia felt the same. Um, people seem to actually accept it, which I find very odd. I mean, we like to think... We're a country of, you know, Ned Kelly descendants and Eureka Stockade and we're all rebels and put it to the man and all this kind of crap. But it's not true. I mean, when it comes down to it, uh, if the government tells us to do something, we just do it. We fall into line like lemmings and we don't question it. And then you see, of course, uh, last week when journalists, um, including Andrew Huff at The Advertiser, who's a very fine journo, gets up at the press conference and, and dares to ask... Grant Stevens about whether these many hotel workers should have been working two jobs, which um, your inquiry in Victoria recommended they shouldn't. Uh, he goes immediately on on the defensive, sort of starts criticising the journalists. How dare you ask this question? It's completely unreasonable. And then South Australians on social media start ganging up against Huffy and other journalists for daring to ask these questions. It, it, it's a very strange phenomenon when people are actually uh, seemingly glad or happy that their government has told them that they must stay inside, they must go outside for no reason, not even to exercise or to walk their dog. It's quite bizarre. Yeah, I just can't believe there was nothing from environment, uh, sorry, animal rights groups talking about how you couldn't even bring your dog out to exercise or bring her around pets. Like, I was just like, wait, isn't this the, one of your number one fears? Uh, speaking of fears, actually, so... The lockdown's basically over now, like especially those ridiculous restrictions that we saw. Is there now a cultural fear, like at, at any moment, South Australia is literally one lie to a contact tracer away from going straight back into lockdown. Like how long is that going to take to shake off? Well, I would like to think that now that they've gone through that, they will not be so rash in future. Um, you know, fool me once, fool me twice. Seriously, you, you cannot do that kind of thing on the basis of one data point. Um, if they haven't learnt their lesson from that, and if all the other states haven't learnt their lesson from that, then something is seriously wrong. Well, what it probably suggests is that our contact tracing system wasn't quite as foolproof as we thought it was. And we've been talking about, you know, gold standard, gold standard, this and that. Um, and perhaps it was not quite as strong as we thought it was. If one man's lie uh, can basically bring the whole state down, then you are in serious trouble. So as much as I would like to think that we're not going to do this again, um, I think it's there's been some reputational damage. I mean, uh, as soon as the lockdown was announced, it, it seemed as though people in South Australia were like, hooray for uh, Stephen Marshall and uh, Nicola Spurrier. Um, Saint Nicola, as some people have been calling her, our uh, Chief Public Health Officer. But the rest of the country was like, hang on, you've got 17 cases and you're locking the entire state down. I mean, New South Wales um, has had multiple outbreaks. I mean, we think back to uh, June, July, or it was the, the end of June, started July when they had the, the hotel outbreak over there and you now you've got 30 cases coming up a day. They got down to about... 20 on a regular basis. Now, Sydney never went into lockdown, or, the, or Greater New South Wales for that matter, and they didn't go into lockdown. They dealt with it. They had good contact tracing, um, they had a certain level of restrictions, which is fair, and they got on top of it. And I don't see any reason why SA couldn't have done the same in this circumstance and why that shouldn't be done in future. I mean, our contact tracing really was so good that within a couple of days, of the first case being identified, there were 4,000 people in quarantine. They'd located every person that these people had had contact with and put them straight in quarantine. So there was no risk of the virus spreading um, into the community because they were so quick to lock those people down. And that's exactly how it should be done. 
if, if we as a state in South Australia and a country generally want to go forward, we can't keep having lockdowns. I mean, I'm writing a story today, for instance, about how it's affecting the travel sector. How can anyone have confidence if they book a holiday that they can come to South Australia uh, and they'll be able to go back to their own state by the time their holiday's finished? Because the minute this started, the NT locks South Australians out, Queensland locks South Australians out. Like, there's just all these snap decisions uh, being made on very small amounts of data. And I understand that leaders don't want to be seen to be doing nothing. They don't want to be too late to the party. But you can't be too early to the party either. It all comes at a cost. Caleb, one of the things that's – you've touched on a little bit there with a few of your answers. One of the things that has struck me about this whole thing, whether it's been in Victoria or, you know, the popularity of border closures in Queensland and Western Australia or, as you mentioned, the population, uh, the popularity of Stephen Marshall and public health officials in South Australia. We've seen this support for a lot of this stuff and, and the, you know, lionising of public health officials. We had one of the most annoying things for me that I've found is uh, with the Brett Sutton tote bags um, – but have you been surprised about how easy it's been for or how much support these measures have had and how easy it's been to frighten people? Um, is that just like people can't understand statistics or, you know, I guess I'm asking, do you, is it, have, you, have you been surprised about the level of support for these measures across Australia and, and how easy it's been to scare people? Yeah, to a degree I have. I mean, I, I suppose I kind of um, overestimated how rebellious we were as a country. Um, yeah. I thought... Uh, being being the, um, the the convict as we were not in South Australia we were a free settled state <laughs> which may explain why we accepted this so readily because we're far too British um, but I, I thought that as a as a convict country it was sort of in our blood to stand up to power and question things and and, and say no get not it let's let's have a serious look at this um, but it doesn't seem to have happened and and as you mentioned one of the strangest aspects of that is this lionising of public health officials. Because, of course, we elect politicians to make decisions. We don't elect bureaucrats and public servants to make decisions. Because if you leave decisions in the hands of bureaucrats and public servants, they're ultimately going to do what makes sense to them on a piece of paper. We employ bureaucrats and public servants to make um, fact and figure-based decisions and we elect politicians to make moral decisions. And their, their job basically is, is to find the middle ground, really. Take what the public servants give them and then turn that into something that is, is able to be sold to the public uh, and is good for the public. Whereas in this circumstance, uh, people seem to have been quite happy to hand all the power over to those public health officials like Nicholas Fuhrer or... Brett Sutton or various other people and let them run the show. And and that's not, they weren't elected to do that. They weren't put in these positions to do that. Um, they're there to advise and state government, but they're not there to run the show. Um, but I, I think part of the reason people have liked so much is because it's not a politician telling them what to do. In a perverse way, people are sick of being told what to do by politicians. They feel like they can trust a doctor and um, so they seem more likely to take the advice of Nicholas Furrier or Brett Sutton than they are to take the advice of Daniel Andrews or uh, Stephen Marshall. Yeah, the other part to me of that is that look, Nick, people like Nicholas Barrier and Brett Sutton, their literal only job they've had for years and years is how do I make sure a pandemic doesn't get across the community? Like, that's the only thing they think about. It's the only thing they study. It's the only thing they go to conferences and discuss. Uh, so then when it does come out, we're also expecting them to know exactly what effects on mental health is going to be or the importance of being in a job. But politicians are like, no, 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 you're making every decision from here on in. It's just this complete uh, abdication of responsibility from politicians. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, we don't elect them to do nothing. Um, Grant Stevens, the police commissioner, is not elected, nor is Nicholas Spurrier. Um, we elect politicians and governments ultimately to make moral decisions for us as a populace um, and for a, a leader, a, a premier, a prime minister or whoever to sort of abdicate that responsibility to an unelected doctor or bureaucrat or public servant is an abrogation of their responsibility. I mean, it's when it comes down to it in 
18 months' time, when we have an election in South Australia, you don't have a Nicola Spuria box tick to say, I like Nicola Spuria's response to the pandemic. You've got a Labor, Liberal, Greens, etc. box to tick. Um, premiers had to take some responsibility. You know, you, you take the advice of doctors because they're ultimately looking at, at uh, a physical health perspective. That's what we employ them to do. We want them to give stern, strong advice. But it's then a leader's role or a politician's role to weigh that up with the needs and the wants of the public. And one of those, as you say, is mental health. And I'm not sure that in these discussions that has been um, given as much credence as it should because we've been so obsessed with, with purely the physical health aspect, which has allowed this whole thing to become the purview of, of doctors only. Uh, Caleb, so um, one thing that both premiers have talked about, both of our premiers have talked about in the aftermath of this is insecure work. They've blamed some of the effects of this on the fact that people are working different jobs, uh, given that obviously the massive economic consequences of the lockdowns that we've had in Australia, um, it doesn't seem like a good idea to make uh, it more difficult for people to work by putting more restrictions on insecure work. What's your, your view on the, hist- uh, on the future of insecure work? Uh, in Australia and in, in, in our states? Well, I don't see there being any great change, to be perfectly honest. Um, businesses have been so battered by everything they've been through. Um, and, you know, businesses in South Australia that at a moment's notice were told that they wouldn't be able to open for six days. I mean, they, they didn't have any contingency plans. Restaurants had to chuck out thousands of dollars worth of stock each. They didn't know this was coming. It's not fair to expect them to then pick up the sticks afterwards and, and to rebuild the hut. Um, if you place more restrictions or you make it more difficult for people to be employed, then businesses simply aren't going to employ them. Um, and they won't be able to employ them. They won't be able to afford to employ them because they've been hit so hard by everything we've been through this year. I mean, it, it's such a maelstrom of issues that it becomes virtually impossible to do anything about it. You've got to try and let the business sector get back on its feet. Um, But having said that, the issues that we see now about these workers who are working multiple jobs, like the guy who was working in a midi hotel and in a pizza shop, I do wonder whether it would have been cheaper at the end of the day to just pay these people more money to work in a hotel only. it, it, It would have stopped this issue of people working two jobs. You look at the economic cost of the restrictions and the lockdowns and whatever that Victoria and South Australia have gone through. Would it have been cheaper just to pay these people to work in one place? Quite possibly. Um, And then you can talk about whether they should be in cities at all. There are so many issues with, with the Medi Hotel system. But I do wonder if we just paid them to work in the hotel, given them enough money that they didn't have to go and get a second job, would we be talking about this right now? Brilliant. Caleb Bond, check him out at The Advertiser. Follow him on Twitter. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks, mate. Okay, we now welcome back onto the show one of the very good friends of the podcast, the IPA's Director of Communications, Evan Mulholland. Welcome back. Thanks for having me, guys. All right, so last week we had uh, Joe Gersh, ABC board member, write an article saying that the IPA is the leading voice in Australia trying to keep the ABC privatized, trying to get the ABC privatized. Always good to be recognized for our hard work, so thank you to Joe Gersh. And then he goes on to say the ABC is actually wonderful and awesome and no one should touch it. Uh, there's a whole lot of stuff we should talk about with this one. I want to start off at uh, about halfway through the article where he says the ABC doesn't have a bias problem because one time Paul Kelly and Malcolm Turnbull went on the ABC and they're conservatives. So do we just want to do we just want to want to spend a few minutes just unpacking that? Yeah, exactly, exactly. So uh, first of all, he describes Paul Kelly and Malcolm Turnbull as conservative. Uh, that is a label I don't think either of them would apply to themselves. They can more easily be characterised as small-L liberals, um, yet Joe Gersh described them as conservative. The second thing is you have to look at the composition of the rest of the panel. You had left-wing academic Jenny Hocking. You had left-wing uh, uh, activist and journalist Jan Fran. Uh, you had... Uh, the host, Hamish McDonald, uh, who, who is no right-winger. And, of course, you had former Labor Premier Bob Carr. So 
you've got stacked decks once again. You haven't even got a single conservative, yet that's the ABC's explanation for why it hasn't got a bias problem when it clearly has. Now, Evan, you wrote a response to this piece uh, the, the last week in The Australian. It had heaps and heaps of replies and um, comments underneath it. It's on the IPA website if you want to read it. But if you don't want to read it, what were your main points? Uh, basically, I just sort of responded to Joe Gersh's uh, claims, and there was a few of them. He was basically responding to Chris Kenny, because Chris Kenny had written after the Four Corners episode that um, uh, he's always uh, pushed back on calls to privatise the ABC, but he now believes it's against, uh, it, it, it's beyond redemption, and that it, you possibly should be privatised, which is a big call for Chris Kenny. I've had many debates with him on Sky about privatising the ABC. Was he's pushed back against that idea? So it was a significant development. I think that's the reason why the ABC board are clearly quite uh, anxious about it. Uh, so uh, we've prompted Joe Gersh to write the piece. But look, uh, in summary, I always support more media diversity and diversity in the media. But the ABC is not diversity in the media. It's the state. Uh, intruding on a private media market with a giant taxpayer-funded behemoth that we're all forced to pay for. I don't think it's compatible with a free society. So what I basically call for is to turn the ABC into a subscription service. Uh, as similar models are being proposed for the BBC in the UK. And I think this uh, idea is picking up steam. In a private... Me- in, in, if the ABC is as good and is as trustworthy and is as popular as the ABC and Joe Gersh makes it out to be, then they have absolutely nothing to fear in operating in a private media market. He also says, and many defenders of the ABC also say that the fact that the ABC runs uh, with taxpayer funds rather than commercials makes it, is essential to its independence, basically implying that all other news outlets uh, editorial line is somehow dictated to by its advertisers. Now, that is a charge I think a, a, a broadcaster, a public broadcaster like the SBS, would absolutely refute. And they have been able to take advertising as well as uh, be a public broadcaster. But for some reason, the ABC seems to think it's off limits. Yeah, so this might get technical for people out there but it is important because like what ABC privatization actually is tends to get so lost and it's something that Joe Gersh really writes about in his article where he says uh cause for the abolition or privatization of the ABC in brackets essentially the same thing and like it isn't the same thing like what no one from well like no one at the IPA is saying that Q&A should be banned or that like ABC journalists shouldn't publish the IPA supports the ongoing existence of the ABC. And I do believe it, will be, it would be a formidable force where it w- if it were a private uh, media organisation. And as I said, if, they, if it is good, is as trustworthy, as popular as ABC staff make it out to be, then it has absolutely nothing to fear uh, in becoming a part of Australia's flourishing private media markets. Now, you look at the shape of the media, they're saying the ABC is essential because of fake news and because of diversity in the media, But and everyone uh, you know, sort of blames the boogeyman of News Corp. But you look at the media from, um, from the New Daily to the Guardian to the ABC to SBS to, to Channel 10, uh, you've got a, a junky, crikey, whatever-y, um, uh, you know, endless amounts of left-wing media outlets, yet the boogeyman all of a sudden is, is News Corp. So uh, I, I sort of have a go at, um, at uh, what has been described as Murdoch derangement syndrome because that's what it is. And it comes from, I think, um, you know, this campaign by Kevin Rudd and this idea of a petition comes from this a very elite mindset that the left-wing worldview, ABC staff's worldview and the ABC's worldview is so moral and so perfect that everyone else must be somehow brainwashed or ill-informed. Uh, and that is an elitist mind, mindset that really has no place in Australia. Um, uh, we uh, did some media monitoring analysis of the ABC and their coverage since October 10, when Kevin Rudd's petition was launched, 
and found that the ABC had mentioned Murdoch over 3,000 times. That is not the act of a, uh, a bipartisan independent news service. That is an act, the act of ABC staff uh, obsessed with their perceived enemies. Yeah, exactly right. It's crazy for them to sort of, you know, like Kevin Rudd was literally Prime Minister. Malcolm Turnbull was literally Prime Minister. And to them say, oh, you know, I never had the power to enact the policies I wanted because of, you know, this guy in New York and his media organisation is like, you know, maybe you were just wrong, mate. Anyway, um, what was I going to ask? Well, yeah, so you mentioned you mentioned a few uh, of those left-wing media outlets. Does it? Do you ever wonder why there isn't as much... They don't mention privatising the ABC as much or they don't even argue for privatising the ABC as much because clearly they're the ones that are suffering from it, like the ABC crowds out that market. Um, it, do you wonder what, what the issue is there? You're completely right. Um, and many of them won't touch the subject or even cover significant debate on the subject because for a lot of journalists, they would very much like to have the security of working at the ABC someday, uh, which you know pays more than most other private... Uh, media organisations. We've seen the the, the uh, spread of left wing media organisations. If you want to if you want to digest left wing news, you can go anywhere to get it. There is so much left wing news outlets. There's actually too many. Uh, which uh, you've seen the demise of outlets like BuzzFeed and Ten Daily. Uh, but whenever there is a new sort of type of news in the media market, the ABC feels the need to encroach on that whereas it should be acting in places where the market isn't, like regional news, like state uh, political news, yet it decides to go after all these niche types of news and crowd out and basically destroy with taxpayer funds its competitors. Yeah, and like uh, the other side of this, I think we should discuss is, uh, and we kind of been talking about it anyway, but the idea that oh, the, people would say the ABC was fixed if only there were a few more conservative voices on it or a few more libertarian voices on it, and it just wasn't so uh, you know this homogenous voice. But the point is, like uh, for me, it could be a twenty four seven news network devoted to stories about how good James Bolt is, and I would still say, okay, taxpayers shouldn't fund this. Like if it's if private companies are willing to put it in for themselves, then the state has no reason that it needs to build and maintain this gigantic media empire. You're completely right. I I would not support an ABC where, you know, a group think for the right. Uh, I don't think that is, uh, uh, I don't, I don't think that's good for a free society. I think uh, diversity of media is absolutely a good thing, but we shouldn't have the blunt hand of the state forcing us to have media diversity. Now, the ABC are meant to have a charter. It's meant to be impartial. It's meant to see both sides. But the ABC and the ABC staff see their role as being a counter to News Corp and a counter to News on the Right. Well, that's not their role. If you wanted to digest news like that, you'd go to The Guardian which is actually often known as the ABC staff's internal newsletter. But it's not the role for the ABC to be a counter to News Corp. It's the role of the ABC to be an independent broadcaster, which is why I've been saying for so long uh, that the ABC should be privatised because if a giant $1.1 billion a year organisation uh, has currency as a left-wing media organisation as it is at the moment, then let it stand on its own two feet. If it's good as ABC staff say it is, then we should we should let it run in Australia's private media market and I'll wish it all the best. Evan, you are a man of the world. You know, you've got friends all across the political spectrum. Has anyone ever admitted to you? Because I've always thought they must know deep down that they're on a really good wicket and that's why they make up these ridiculous claims about needing to counter News Corp. Um, just because it's a great thing. Have they ever admitted to you, maybe after a couple of froths, that, yeah, we know that there's absolutely no justification for having a government-funded ABC, but it's just so good for us that we keep it or we keep supporting it? There, there are some people that are so captured by that worldview that they actually think the ABC is doing a you know reasonable job. It, is, it, it speaks for them. But as we know from IPA polling only 32% of Australians think the ABC 
represents their views. Now, you've got an organisation where only 32% of people think it speaks for them, but 100% of people have to fund it. I don't think that's right. And I don't think that's right that, you know, only the left see the ABC as, as worthy of defending. There's a reason why the biggest champions of uh, the ABC are the Greens, because it very much uncritically speaks to their worldview. Uh, and it goes to a lot of things, one of them being uh, the location of the main ABC studios being South Bank and Ultimo. And basically it covers uh, the, it only covers issues that are prominent within cycling distance of ABC and Ultimo. And it doesn't really get out to the suburbs or the regions where mainstream Australians are. Uh, I have kind of fallen out of the loop of this conversation. There's a uh, fun fact, old lady around uh, me that keeps on coming over to our house to take some lemons and she uh, just needed to be attended to for a second. But uh, So you might have already discussed this. Apologies if you have. Evan, were you surprised as I was that Kevin Rudd's petition had that many signatories from Bangladesh? I just thought it'd be weird <laughs> that it would be such a, a huge issue for people in Bangladesh. Uh, to be honest, um, I, I'll, I'll tell Take the, the half a million on face value without the, the thousand from Bangladesh. I do genuinely think there probably are half a million people out there that want a, a Murdoch Royal Commission. Um, it's one, th- that 500,000 is actually one third of the Green Senate vote at the last election. So I'm actually surprised it's not more than that. Uh, I think it's a little pathetic that they only managed to wrangle 500,000 people. Uh, it is not significant. Uh, but it has had some success. There is a Senate inquiry looking into media diversity in Australia and uh, a, 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 a media sector which looks into government and keep, keeps government accountable is healthy for democracy. A uh, situation where it's the other way around, where it's government looking into the media is incredibly dangerous for democracy. And that is what is happening right now. And you've seen that petition from Kevin Rudd get the endorsement of people like Malcolm Turnbull. It was Malcolm Turnbull only uh, two or three years ago as Prime Minister that liberalised Australia's media market, allowing media organisations to grow. And now he's essentially uh, endorsing a re-regulation of Australia's media market where um, uh, you would he's basically diminishing his own achievements as prime minister so you've got hypocrisy all around but you do have some some very dangerous consequences coming from this and more holton thank you so much for your time thanks fellas Okay, thank you to Caleb Bond and to Evan Mulholland. A lot of fun. All right, uh, let's fly through some stories that have made us laugh this week. Now, Pete, bit of a controversy. Oh, you talked about this early in the show, the get get woke, go broke, but not... They'll go broke eventually, but not right now. I'm, I'm making a meal of this. Save me from myself. Well, it needs... You're, you're, it's, it's unlucky for you because it needs a saying. It's not quite go, go woke, go broke. It's, it needs a name Go woke, it. become a joke. That's not bad. Get covered That's in yolk. Should have stuck when you were ahead. Yeah, I hit hit on 17. I hit on 17. That's my bad. Yeah, it's so what it is, it's one of those ones where a company tries to go work, but then actually ends up being more offensive than they originally were. And of course, I'm talking about Allens, who are owned by Nestle. Um, They renamed their lollies Redskins and Chicos recently due to overtones. Uh, They renamed the Redskins the Red Ripper. Now, unfortunately for Allens, the Red Ripper is the nickname given to the notorious Soviet serial killer Andrei Chikatilo, who killed as many as 52 people, maybe more, they're not quite sure, uh, for two decades before his execution in 1994. And I sort of question how much uh, Alan's, how much research Alan's put into this, because literally, if you write Red Ripper into Google, the very first thing that comes up is like 15 pictures of this absolute lunatic and a Wikipedia... <laughs> Uh, entry about this guy. So I don't understand how you can do that. If you're going to put all this effort into putting a new name, they probably hired a marketing company. They probably, you know, did, what are they called? Focus groups, got a diversity person in and no one Googled the name. So go work and get yoke on your face, you big joke or whatever James said. (laughs) Uh, That was better than what I said. I I would have thought the word Ripper is just so... 
uh, has so much connotation with serial killer story history that you yeah. don't want to like just double check. He's not even the only serial killer called Ripper. So. Yeah, that, that's that's the point. Uh, the other one is I didn't realize his name is Chickatillo because I know also the Chico Rolls got renamed because it wasn't woke. So do you reckon there was like a few people at Chico Rolls that were pushing for Chickatillo and just went like, oh, thank gosh we didn't. Did you see what happened to Redskins? Yeah, well, exactly. The other... The other... Lolly was called Chico's that they changed the name of. So... Maybe that's, that's exactly what I just said. Well done, Peter. <laughs> no, you said Chico Roll. I'm talking about Chico. Did what did you oh, say? Right. I don't know. I thought I was. I, I thought Chico Rolls and Chicos were the same thing because uh, I've never eaten either. This I've never isn't. Eaten either. This isn't working very well. Let's move on to another topic. Uh, okay. Um, we have uh, this one. The New York Post finally got their Twitter unlocked by Twitter, and That's good. thank goodness for it because we finally get. Because New York Post have a thing where they do very good reporting about stuff like Hunter Biden's laptop, but then they do this other style of reporting, which is all we want to do is have the viral tweet that everyone retweets with their own jokes. And this was one of them, which was uh, scientists splice human genes into monkey brains to make them bigger and smarter. Pete, your initial reactions. Well, my initial reactions to that is uh, I didn't know that that was the plot of Planet of the Apes because, as you know, I'm not a big movie guy. So my initial reaction was... We could show you Planet of the Apes and you'd be blown away about the Statue of Liberty at the end because you'd be like, whoa, it was our planet the whole time? Yeah, see, and I don't get that reference because I've never seen it, but I, I, you know, I should, I should see it. My, my question was, would you, you know, would you rather be? Oh no, that's right. The thing that I noticed about this in reading the report was that um, they actually ended up killing the fetus or aborting the fetus due to possible unforeseen circumstances. So, well, I mean, that's suspicious, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, except for the one that they kept in the jar, and yeah, then five yeah. years later. Uh, the other one I had from this one was like, uh, it was a team of Japanese and German researchers. I don't know if you guys are history buffs or not. <laughs> doesn't seem yeah. like the two countries we want uh, with the weapons for World War Four, us v. apes. Anyway, uh, That's right. we got another story, Peter. Yeah, okay. So let's get on to, um, let's get on to Lewis Hamilton. Now, seven-time Formula One champion Lewis Hamilton uh, has lost, unfortunately for Lewis, a three-year legal battle with Swiss luxury watchmaker over the trademark of the name Hamilton. So, mate, it's not like you're the only Hamilton in the world. This uh, company, this watch company, Hamilton International, was registering their trademark throughout Europe. Uh, and they actually go back to 1892 was when they first became a company. So, obviously... When was time, Lewis Hamilton born? He was born in 1985, James, which you would uh, notice okay, is so. almost 100 years later. Uh, and I just reckon, mate... Yeah, as I said, you know, you're not the only Hamilton. Hamilton's a pretty common name. Does that mean you've got dibs on it forever just because you're a good car driver? I don't think so, mate. What about Hamilton Island? What about yeah, Hamilton I was going to say, can you imagine Victoria? him? Yeah, you can imagine him seeing a map and there's got Hamilton Island in the corner. He's like, wait, what? Who are these people to steal are my you unique name? Are you kidding me? Yeah. Yeah. Well, or just picks up like this US, US history book and it's like the profile of Alexander Hamilton. <laughs> just, what? Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Yeah. I love yeah. interstitial uh, figures in history. That would be a lot of fun for me. Um, yeah. All right. Last story I want to get to. So Jamila Jamil, one of uh, the favorite section, uh, favorite people to have in the villain section of this show, uh, possibly the most woke person on the planet, gave an interview to the Australian. And I just want to like chime in on this last question here. She was asked, name three stereotypes of women that you would like to see disappear and explain why. And she responds to be thin, young, and likable because it's all boring nonsense. Men are never expected to even think about this. Never mind, try to live up to it. Now, Pete, I don't know about you, uh, but I've thought about uh, being likable every waking second of my life. So don't know if that's the most accurate uh, answer I've ever heard in my life. Yeah, I don't think I don't think Jamila has, you know, accurately, um, what would be the word, sort of uh, understood your experience, James. Uh and also, it's like, what, why would you be choosing that to be the thing that you don't want people to be? Like, you know, people should cast off their likableness and embrace being a bellend that no one likes. I don't know. Um, maybe it'll make Jamila Jamil's life a whole lot more easier. Just yeah, stop yeah, worrying maybe, about likability. Maybe this is the problem. My thing with this is like, why are the Oz? Like, the Oz is my sanctuary. If I wanted to be smeared for my race and gender and sexuality, I'd go on Twitter you know, I open the Oz and here's Jamila Jamil perpetuating all this garbage. 
uh, you know, I'm, I, the Oz can publish whatever they want, but why would it, why would they be interviewing her? Yeah, baffling scenes. All right, that is it for the show this week. Thank you to Caleb Bond and Evan Mulholland. Uh, if you like this podcast, thank you very much for listening. Make sure you're telling your friends and family about the show. And if you are listening through Apple Podcasts, make sure you leave us that review. It helps us get out to even more people in Saudi Arabia. So we want to really grow that audience. Shout out to all our listeners down there. Let's get to 33 uh, this week. Let's get to 33 this week. And um, yeah, word of mouth is the best way to grow a podcast. So please make sure you're telling friends and family about the show. We're not the only podcast the IPA is doing. got a huge podcast network. We've got Looking Forward coming out every week uh, with Scott Hargraves and Chris Berg really taking an analytical look at the week in news. Five favorite books. We just had Janet Olbrechtson's uh, episode come out last week and one of her books just got banned from schools in California. So if you want to be one of the last people that gets to read To Kill a Mockingbird and discuss it publicly without being accused of racism, there you go. By the way, seriously, To Kill a Mockingbird's racist now? Like... <laughs> This is grim. Oh, this is grim for all of us. There's racist tropes in it, James, because yeah. it's a book about racism in the 30s. Unbelievably yeah, contains about, racist tropes. Yeah, The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn also got banned, and I'm going to stop myself before I go on my hour and a half long patented rant about why Huckleberry Finn should never be banned in any book, uh, banned in any form ever, ever. Uh, where was I? Sorry, looking forward, five favorite <laughs> books. We've got Viral Banter coming out every fortnight with a few of our Generation Liberty coordinators talking about issues as they, uh, you know, affect young people around Australia. And then back in the tank, we've got Australia's Future with John Roscombe and Tony Abbott. We've got great books of literature with John Roscombe and Andrew Bolt. And uh, yeah, just so many great podcasts out there. The Heretic as well. Make sure you're listening to them and we'll see you guys next week. See you later.